What's up, everyone? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Episode 19, we're doing best Boston-based movies. It's wicked pissa, kid. We're going to have an awesome time, guy. This is going to be super fun. Hell, hell yeah. Leo and I, as most of you know, we're, we're living in Los Angeles at the time right now, but we are from Massachusetts. We're from Boston, so this is a subject that's near and dear to our hearts, so we're going to have a blast. Mm-hmm. And these are, these. we're not saying these are the best Boston movies. They're, these are our favorite Boston movies. I think they're the best, though. I think they're the best, too. We're doing a short list. We're going to do three movies total, plus we'll We'll mention some honorable mentions later on. Yeah, there are some really great ones, but we just wanted to narrow it down to the ones we absolutely love and the ones that we've seen countless times. Yeah, and Boston's a very interesting city. It's a lot of fun. It's co- it's got a lot of culture and it's a very historic town and city. Mm. So it's a great setting for a lot of different stories, and we've seen in cinema over the last couple decades. And as people know, we have our own accent. We have our own way of talking. Our yeah, own- guy. Yeah, wicked pissa guy. <laughs> yeah. Fortunately, Leo and I have uh, managed to get river accents for when we do the podcast, but we'll bust it out every once in a while during the episode. Yeah, kid. Yeah. Let's do this. But first, before we begin, if you like our podcast and our content and want to help us out and help us grow, the best thing you can do is share our podcast on YouTube, share us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We know you have a bunch of movie friends. We have a bunch of movie friends. We're movie people. Share us with the movie people you know. Let them, let them know that there's cool podcasts for them to check out that they don't know of. It's a wicked piss of podcast. Yeah, share our, share our podcast with your friends, guy. <laughs> we don't have a marketing department. It's just it's just me and Leo. Leo does the editing. I do everything else. So it's just us two. Just God knows how far we'll make it this way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, leaving five-star reviews is very helpful. I know we say it every episode. I know every podcast you hear this. But leaving the five-star reviews helps us get seen by new people on Google Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts. And Apple Podcasts, especially the written reviews. So really, we'd appreciate it. And thank you so much for all the international support we're getting people from Australia, all you Kiwis down there in New Zealand, England. We have fans all over the place. We love you all so much. Thanks, guys. We love you. And warning, spoilers are abound. We're talking about the movies. So if you haven't seen these and you don't want to know what happens, you might want to watch the movie, then watch the episode. Let's get started. Let's do it, man. No, let's get started, kid. Started, kid. Started. Did you pack the cat, kid? The first movie we're going to go over is our favorite movie based in Boston and one of our personal top 10 list favorite movies of all time, I think, for both of us, The Departed. The Departed. The Departed uh, is first on our list, again, because it's the best Boston-based film ever made. It's not even a competition. Made in 2006, directed by the legendary Martin Scorsese. The Departed is a remake of a Chinese film called Internal Affairs. And it's about an undercover South Boston cop who infiltrates the crime organization of gang leader Frank Costello and tracks down an undercover rat in the Massachusetts State Department Special Investigations Unit. This movie is incredible because Scorsese, who's famous for being from New York, took his amazing aesthetic and his gravitas of filmmaking and brought it to the city of Boston in a way we've never seen before. And just the quality of talent involved in this movie. I mean, just the the main cast is DiCaprio, Matt Damon, Jack Nicholson, Mark Wahlberg, Martin Sheen, Alec Baldwin, Ray Winstone, and Vera Farmiga. Amazing cast. Yeah. And also, not just the New York thing that like Scorsese always puts in his movies is the common theme of New York City. Also, instead of an Italian-themed characters, it's Irish-based characters. Exactly. Irish mob. So he switched sides. He even pokes fun at uh, Italians in the movie when uh, yeah. when uh, Will Costigan attacks Italians inside a convenience store. So it's mm-hmm. awesome to see someone who you think only... Uh, makes films about Italian culture and make a film about Irish culture in a different city than he's from, too. 100%. And this film's main theme is the idea of living a lie. So every one of the main characters, the three main characters, they each are living a lie. Costigan isn't really a gangster. 
Sullivan isn't really a cop, and then Frank Costello is actually an FBI informant. So this explores the themes of what would it, what what are the consequences to living a life? Also, the themes of betrayal, mm. themes of ambition, and opposites. You know, you're dealing with the Irish mob gangs, but you're also dealing with like the police, the State Department. So that's kind of its own sort of gang of people. Mm. We're also dealing with Costigan versus Sullivan, good versus bad. Uh, two undercover um, undercover cop and a mole in the Massachusetts State Department system. So there's a lot of great themes in this film mm. a lot of symbolic images which we'll get to and the boston accent is always one that's tough for actors to nail if they're not originally from the city i feel like every actor in this film nails the accent without a doubt no yeah. problem yeah leo does a great job martin yeah. sheen does a really great job with this accent yeah. too he does like that cliche like thick boston cop because in boston if you're like a blue collar worker a cop a firefighter something like that you're, the thicker your accent are is like if you're working one of those jobs, it's thick as hell. You wear a Carhartt jacket. It's it's you, you insane. You get your coffee at Dunkin's. It's I mean, just a, it becomes a kind of person. Our, I feel like our accents are starting to come out as we go through this movie already. <laughs> Plus, we've been drinking some beers. Yeah, yeah. To sell to to <laughs> prepare for a Boston-based movie, we had to have a couple of beers to get a little toasty for this because everyone know, in Boston's drunk and we're all alcoholics, so we but had we had I, to do it. But if Drink responsibly, guys. 21 and older. 21 and older, don't drink and drive. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're doing this at night in our home, so we're having a good time. But um, let's get into this movie mm. because I know this is a, a remake, but that doesn't take away from it being, in my opinion, a masterpiece by Scorsese. And I think it's a damn shame that it took until 2006 for this guy to finally win an Oscar for Best Director. It's crazy because he made Raging Bull, Taxi Driver, and Goodfellas, and he didn't get, he didn't win for any of them. You know what he lost to Goodfellas to? What? He lost to, to Kevin Costner for Dances with Dances Wolves. Dances with Wolves? That's Are you what, kidding me? He won Best Picture that year, and he won Best Director that year. Oh, my God. Dances with Wolves is good. You're not watching Dances with Wolves seven times a year. Absolutely not. I'm watching Goodfellas like 12 times a year. <laughs> That's a fact. Oh, my. What a joke. Yeah, and this film... Uh, besides winning Best Director for Marty, it won Best Screenplay. It uh, William Monaghan's the writer. It won Best Picture, and it also won Best Editing, and it also got an Oscar nomination for Maki Guy. Mark Wahlberg actually rejected the role twice. Scorsese had to really convince him into taking the role because Wahlberg originally wanted to play one of the leads. He didn't want to be the supporting character, and so it was a back and forth, and then... The way Scorsese convinced Wahlberg to take the part was he was like, I'll let you say whatever you want. You have free reign to improvise. Just go with it. And then that convinced Wahlberg to be like, okay, I mean, I'm not playing the lead in this film, but if I get to have fun with it and do whatever I want, I'll take the role. Do you know how who he based his, his performance off of? Off of uh, cops that arrested him as a kid? Yeah, so from <laughs> police officers who arrested him, he says at least two dozen times when he was in his youth, he based the performance off of, also off his family members who had to bail him out with the grocery money. <laughs> so, that guy was a troubled kid. And like the lines that he says in this movie, I love because they're so accurate to Bostonians yeah. and like that city talk. But like you would never hear in a film normally because any writer would be like, we can't put that in the movie. Like, they wouldn't he, even know to put it in yeah so that that's one of the great strengths of the film is mark Wahlberg's super realistic performance of a bostonian cop yeah he steals every scene he's in and he brings a lot of color and a lot of comedy to to the film all right let's get to the lead characters of the film there's there's some great ones yeah. here so dicaprio plays william costigan aka billy costigan the son of a deceased south boston resident whose father and his family has several ties to the Irish mob and Costello's gang, including his deceased Uncle Jackie and cousin Sean. And deceased members and deceased human beings are a common theme in this film. 
obviously evident uh, from the title of the movie, which is basically kind of a big metaphor for the film, The yeah. Departed, The Recently Deceased. That's a foreshadow. And uh, Costigan is clearly a very intelligent guy, and he could uh, he could literally follow any profession he wants, which uh, Queen and hints at when he says his SAT score is 1,400. Yeah, they say he, he says, you're an astronaut, not a cop. They both know he's not a cop. Yeah. And you, you, you're not a cop. <laughs> you're not a cop. And uh, it begs the question, why would why would Costigan give up this life of pretty much getting into any school he wants to, any profession he wants to, to become a cop instead and not just a cop, an undercover cop? I think it's because his father had the opportunity to become a gangster and get in with these guys and become a criminal, but he chose uh, a straight life, worked at the airport, and never did anything wrong, so... The memory of his father, I think, is the driving force to him. I also think that Costigan wants to bring honor to his family because it's so tarnished mm -hmm. by his uncle and his cousin and all the familial ties he has to the Irish mob. So I think that that's why he wants to be a cop. And he doesn't really have much family left to begin with because once his mother dies, he severs ties with his uncle and the rest of his family. And he basically will do whatever he has to do to become a cop because he doesn't he doesn't want to become an undercover cop. He wants to be a state police officer. Yeah, and the thing with becoming a state police officer is it would be the first place where he feels he could fit in with someone because growing up, his parents were divorced, so he spent time between Southie and then a safe suburb with his mother. So every weekend he would, he would go down to the to the rough neighborhoods with his with his father to stay on the weekends. And so he lived these two lives of being a tough kid from Boston and then being a nice intelligent studious kid in the suburbs and so he never felt like he belonged in one place and so maybe if he's a state trooper he feels he can have a place in the world that accepts him and an impact on his town and his neighborhood mm. and and for those of you who don't know Southie is south boston which is infamous in massachusetts and in boston mm. and you see it a lot in stories and films and movies and tv shows Southie, south boston is like Used to be formerly the the toughest neighborhood in America. Mm. It's a it was a predominantly Irish neighborhood. Very tough place to grow up. Pretty hardcore place. And the thing with Boston that a lot of people don't know about, and it doesn't really work this way in other cities, is it's it's cool to be from rough neighborhoods like Southie. It gives you rep among other people, and so it's kind of like a badge of honor to be from a rough area. Whereas in other cities, if you're from a bad area, you don't really want to showboat it. But in Boston, there's this attraction. To dangerous areas yeah in boston has always been like a heavily segregated area in the city even between white people even like the italians and the irish hate each other's guts and they're even segregated for each other mm -hmm. the, the, the irish are in southie and then the italians are in the north end mm -hmm. uh you don't scorsese doesn't really touch on the italians at all just very briefly with italians from Providence in this movie it's mostly about the irish mob in boston and uh i love leonardo DiCaprio's role in this film he does a great job playing a character who's basically a 24-hour panic attack as a human being, in my opinion. He has serious anxiety and, and insecurity disorders that he's constantly dealing with, but on top of that, imagine throwing a person like that into a tank with sharks. So this guy who already has problems, he has to live his life pretending to be a gangster, and he spends each day, day in and day out, pretending to be a gangster surrounded by ruthless killers. So obviously that that stress and that anxiety anxiety builds and builds and builds every day that goes on because the case that he's working on it is takes a long time it takes over a year before things start going it takes everything out of him too yeah and he's probably the character you you emote with the most in the film he's like seems to be the the, the main protagonist in the film mm -hmm. so Costigan is kind of similar to Travis Bickle in that he's like a walking contradiction 
So he's not a cop, really, and he's not a gangster, really. But he's pretending to be both. He wants to be a cop, and the real cops know he's not going to be a cop. But, in, but for him, in order to ever become a cop, is he's, he has to pretend to be a gangster. So he's, playing on the, he's walking on this wire of he doesn't really know where to fit in, and neither one of these paths are going to lead to a good place for him. So he's in this world where he kind of doesn't belong. He's kind of like a fish out of water, but he's stuck in the middle because the cops are using him because of his family ties and the, the past of his father and his uncle to connect with the gangsters. So they, kinda, they kind of uh, take advantage of that. No, and also knowing that he is des- he desperately wants to be a police officer. So they're using him knowing that it's probably still not going to work out. And Marky Mark's character, Dignum, Sergeant Dignum, hates Leo DiCaprio's character, Sullivan, in this movie. And like you said, he doesn't really fit in because he doesn't even hang out with the, the gangsters, the other members of Costello's mob. He's, again, like, a, like you said, like Travis Bickle, he's a loner. Yeah. Aside from the part when he starts to develop a romantic relationship with Vera Farmiga's character. But aside from that, yeah, he's, he's a lonely guy trying to find his path in the world, and he just wants to do good in the world. Mm. And Leo plays it brilliantly. This is one of his underrated roles. I know there was controversy because he didn't get nominated for an Oscar for it, and, and instead that year he got nominated for Blood Diamond. But what happened was Warner Brothers produced both those movies, and they felt that it was better. there's a better chance for him to win for Blood Diamond, so they promoted him for Blood, Blood Diamond to get um, the lead actor nomination. So they didn't do any kind of advertising for him for The Departed. It's so that's why. It's politics. Blood Diamond's a good movie, but yeah. his performance is phenomenal in The Departed. Absolutely. And he's the best part of the movie, honestly. Yeah. Should we move on? Let's move on. Let's move on to Matt Damon, who plays Colin Sullivan, an, or- an orphan Southie son of a janitor raised by his grandmother, also highly intelligent, a hard worker guy. Wicked hard. And he gets groomed from a young age by Frank Costello and becomes the most important person in his crime organization. Sullivan has a lot in common with Costigan, whereas they both kind of don't fit in in the world, and they're desperate to, to, to find a place for themselves. And whereas Sullivan is, is working for the gangsters and he's infiltrated the police force, it's ironic because you can tell his ultimate dream is to become an important figure in Boston. Like he wants to, he gets an apartment where he has a view of the state house in the, in the Golden Dome. And he has big dreams for himself. And I feel like his plan ultimately was to cut ties with the gangsters eventually. Yeah. Sullivan clearly covets power and ambition. Mm-hmm. And he kind of plays both sides where he has this stellar career as a, as a law enforcement officer and as a detective where he could sever ties, like you say, and become a politician someday or just rise very high in the Massachusetts State Police Department. Mm-hmm. And again, it's ironic how similar Colin and Costigan are in a lot of ways. And you'll you'll notice that like they could possibly switch switch shoes with each other if they had different lives. And um, both are quasi orphans of South Boston. Again, both incredibly smart. They both even fall for the same woman, mm-hmm. and they both lead double lives. But Co- but Sullivan's ambition and need for power does get pushed down by Co- by Costello which leads to conflict between the two of them throughout the film. Yeah, what happens is from, uh, from when he's a child, Costello becomes a father figure to him and kind of raises him in a way. But what happens is he learns that Costello cares only about himself and his own power, and so they end up clashing by the end of the film. But multiple times throughout the film, Costello puts 
Sullivan in his place, yeah. in a hierarchical sense, mm-hmm. let him know who's in charge and who's the boss, like with over the phone call while he's on the balcony at the adult theater. And you can tell Sullivan doesn't like it at all. Yeah. He's starting to get sick of it. And it takes Colin the entire film to realize that Costello never cared about him, like you just said. He was never like a son to him. He was simply using him like a tool. Mm. And that's when he eventually takes Costello out at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And Sullivan is really on his own compared to the other members of Costello's gang. Like Costigan, he's the loner. But they're both on their own, besides communication with the, the heads of their departments. And also, just like Costigan, Sullivan is just trying to find a place to fit in. Because as an orphan who grew up in a rough area of Boston without a father, he wants a place to belong. And so, at first he belonged with Costello's crew. And now he's trying to belong with the police department, which is ironic because he's working for Costello. But he smartly plays both sides so that he can, like you said twice, move on to his own career outside of the criminal underworld. Mm -hmm. And Colin eventually, ironically, heads up the investigation of finding the mole in the Boston Special Investigations Unit, which is himself. I have to find myself. Frank, I have to find myself. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. In terms of Sergeant Sullivan... There's this really, really interesting theory that I want to talk about, which I think is true. And if you watch it multiple times with this theory in mind, it kind of makes sense in a way. So I think that Sullivan, Matt Damon's character, is actually a closet homosexual. There are several subtle hints throughout the film that can lead to you coming to the conclusion that he's hiding this closet homosexuality. And I have a few examples. So he... There's several times in the film where he overcompensates for his masculinity when it ever comes into question in any way. For example, when Alec Baldwin asks, asks him how it's going with his girlfriend, um, if his dick's working or something, he goes, oh yeah, it's working. Overtime. It's overtime. Overtime. It's but, great. She's a doctor. But we know that it's not working at all, and he's having problems in bed with his girlfriend. So he's we, having impotence, impotency, impotency problems. So he's having trouble in bed, yet he's lying about it and actually overcompensating for it within a, another man when it comes to his masculinity. And also, in the, in the porno theater, uh, Costello confronts him with a dildo, and, and uh, Sullivan kind of freaks out in a, little, a little bit because he's being confronted with his true desire and what he really wants in life and what he's hiding from himself. And then there's a scene where it's the cops versus firefighters rugby match, and Sullivan calls the firefighters gay multiple times in a derogatory manner. And then he, right after that, he's sitting on the bench with w- what will become his new partner, where he also, out of nowhere, calls the firefighters gay for no reason. It's not even relevant to the situation. And I feel like that could have possibly been a moment where he's testing this new friend of his to see if maybe he's gay. And he's kind of like testing the boundaries of how would he react to me saying that the firefighters are gay. It's it, an interesting theory. And and then, another one? Yeah, so the thing is, so ultimately Sullivan is a character... He's living a lie. His entire life is a lie. And so if he's lying about everything, if he's lying, lying about being a straight cop who's, who's, uh, um, who's committed to justice and serving the law, we know that's not true. So it begs the question, he could be a closet homosexual the entire time who's hiding it because he's not living his truth. It's possible. That's a really, really great analysis, I think. I haven't heard that theory yet before. But when I, I had never thought a closet homosexual from the impotency, but I took from it that, spoiler alerts here, that um, when Vera Farmiga's character um, gets pregnant, that Billy Costigan's the father rather than Colin Sullivan because Colin, Colin Sullivan has impotency issues, which is a theme 
with evil characters in this movie. Yeah. For example, uh, Frank Costello has impotency issues. Remember Matt Damon at the end of the movie, right before he kills him, he says, all that, all, all that, what does he say? All, all that, that dro- all that effing. All that fucking and no sons. And that means that Frank Costello clearly has impotency issues. So it shows me that Billy Costigan is the father of the baby. And then the reaction of Vera Farmiga's character when she sees Colin Sullivan at the funeral for William Costigan. And he goes, what about the baby? Is another final solidification for me that her reaction is, it's got nothing to do with you anymore. You're out of my life. So that's what I get from the impetency with uh, William, with uh, Colin Sullivan and with Costello. A fun fact about Sullivan is that Brad Pitt was originally cast as Sergeant Sullivan in this film because he's actually one of the producers of the film with his uh, production company, Plan B. And he dropped out in order to film Babel with Alejandro and Yeruto. But he still won the Oscar for Best Picture as a producer, so it worked out for him, both yeah. of them. Yeah, I mean, I understand dropping out for that, but it would, I was thinking about that earlier. It would be an interesting movie with Brad Pitt in that role. Well, originally it was Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise as the two leads. Tom Cruise in yeah. the Boston crime movie? I feel movie? like he might have been a little too old for that role, though, because DiCaprio's pretty young. I think he's late 20s 2006. Well, I yeah. mean, Tom does... Who knows what he's doing to look this young at <laughs> 78 years old? <laughs> But I mean, I don't riding know. motorcycles off, off cliffs, cliffs, and then parachuting. If you saw that clip, you know what we're talking about. It's insane. Look it up. In both the first scene and last scene of this film, Sullivan is holding a bag of groceries. Oh crap! So I never Costello, that, yeah. Costello interacts with him in the grocery store and buys him a lot of groceries and gives it to him, and that's his birth into the world of crime. And then in the final scene, when um, Dingham kills Sullivan, he's also holding a bag of groceries. So it's kind of like the end of, of his life with this bookend transition. I never noticed that. Yeah. Good call, man. I like that. Excellent observation. Speaking of Costello, let's move on to Frank Costello, played by Jack Nicholson, who is seriously fantastic in this. One of my favorite Jack Nicholson performances ever. One of the last great performances we've seen from his career because he basically retired in 2010, but he after the departure, he was only in like two or three movies. Mm. Um Scorsese originally wanted Al Pacino for Costello, but Pacino turned it down, which was probably for the best. I don't think, I think Jack took it, took it in a direction that Pacino wouldn't have. With Jack, you, you can tell he's insane. You know what I mean? For me, it's because Pacino had already played a mob boss iconically. So for me, it wouldn't have been the same. And he's so Italian looking. It doesn't work as, as an Irish mobster. Mm. And um, even though he does so well in The Irishman, But this is hands down one of my favorite Jack Nicholson performances and it's I think it's his most underrated performance because he wasn't even nominated for anything he should have been Costello is loosely based off real life Irish mob leader James Whitey Bulger who if you never heard of him he's who the movie Black Mass is based on the one with Johnny Depp um, Nicholson's performance is often erratic and honestly in my opinion hysterical at times and to me Costello seems like somebody who's very intelligent he's sharp as a blade but also completely indulgent to pleasures of sex, drugs, power. And Nicholson gives Costello this like wackiness and this eccentricity um, that you can't help but love to watch. Like when he's at the table with the hand, he's just got this like this, this like zebra patent uh, robe on. It's just like yeah. he's, he's like seems like he's out of it half the time. He's wearing a leopard print tie. Yeah. Half the time he seems out of it or drugged out. And then half the time he seems sharp and intent and focused on what he's doing. Nicholson actually improvised most of his scenes and most of his dialogue in this film. And oftentimes he would write scenes with Marty. He would write dialogue in hotel rooms before they shot. And this gave Nicholson a freewheeling nature to the performance and also affected the actors in a positive way. For example, there's a scene 
a little more than halfway into the film where Costigan is confronted by Costello about being a rat. So Costello thinks there's a rat, and he's pretty much been talking to all of his guys about it, and now it's Costigan's turn, and he meets him at the restaurant. This is a scene where Nicholson gives his famous rat monologue, but also at the end of the monologue, he bumps into the table and drops a gun that he had hidden on his lap the entire time, and he pulls out the gun, and he just taunts DiCaprio with it. And what happened was... DiCaprio didn't even know about the gun. It was not planned by anyone except for Nicholson. Nicholson went to Scorsese and was like, for this take, give me a gun. I need a gun for this. So it wasn't planned, it wasn't written, and DiCaprio wasn't even expecting it. They were just rolling the scene again, and Jack was like, okay, we're just gonna, I have something I'm going to do for you. And so you can see the, the fear in, in DiCaprio's eyes. It's kind of real because it was completely improvised, and he, had, he was not expecting... Jack Nicholson to pull out a gun right there. It's authentic. Next time you look at it, look for that look on DiCaprio's face, and it seems very authentic because it, it is authentic. And yeah. DiCaprio's such a great actor, and he's such a pro that he realized through the take what's happening, and he has to react to it in character as Billy Costigan, and he did a phenomenal job not blowing the take of of his surprise. But yeah. I, I know I've heard stories of Nicholson doing stuff like that on set with, like, I think he brought a fire extinguisher to a take before or something like that. Mm. And then you saw, like, Jared Leto try to replicate this, like, Jack Nicholson craziness on set, sending people weird things for Suicide Stupid. Squad, taking it to a weird level. But Jack Nicholson is just way better at it and a better actor. And and Jack managed to blend this humor along with this ruthlessness to Costello. And you can't help but love watching him on screen. Like, there's that scene of him where he's he just pulls a severed hand out of a bag like it's no big deal. Eating lobster. And he's eating lobster, and, and Costigan's sweating in the chair nearby. Like, I he's get wired the, up. I could get the fuck out of here. And then Mr. French goes, I thought it was nice that you asked him which hand he jerked off with. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. So it's kind of like he has moral standards in a way. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of rats and Costello, ironically, despite the whole movie being about rats... And all of the talk about rats and Costello's obsession for looking for the rat and finding the rat and having his own rat, Frank is the biggest rat of them all. The, the whole theme of the movie, everyone's living a lie. He's been protecting himself and giving people to the feds, giving information to the feds, but he expects everyone else in his crew to be loyal and to be pure to him and his, his cause and his gang. And like Costello is a walking contradiction and a hypocrite himself. Mm. And it makes him a very weak character in my mind. He's a very <laughs> ironic character. Because, he's again, he's the biggest rat of them all. Mm. But it is a parallel to Whitey Bulger, who ultimately was an FBI informant just like Costello. So they say. <laughs> <laughs> but they, um, there's even uh, reports there, uh, um, that Whitey Bulger had intimate relations with his FBI informer. Wouldn't be surprised. I want to go back to the lead characters, Costigan and Sullivan. And these two characters both have very clear paths, which inevitably intersect. You just don't know when it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You know, Marty puts these two in very close proximity throughout the film, building tension until they finally meet. It happens first at William Costigan's interview with Dignam and Queenan, and also Colin Sullivan's promotion to the SIU Special Investigations Unit, which happens in the same office. And as Sullivan leaves the room from that promotion interview, Costigan is sitting right there at the door, unbeknownst to both of them. They're going to be mortal enemies soon. And the, and the cool thing about the shot is, clearly 
Colin Sullivan's very well-dressed. He's very confident, presents himself in a very flamboyant way. Whereas Costigan sitting down, he's like kind of dressed like in a preppy boy outfit with these with the beige slacks and dark suit coat. He seems unconfident, unsure of himself, and quiet. And he's just kind of sitting there, not talking to the beautiful receptionist at, right next to him. Like, he looks like a kid, like Costigan. Yeah, so he looks like a kid just out of boarding school or something. And then um, that's the first time that you know this path of of both of them starts. It's ironic. And then Costigan also developed a relationship with Sullivan's girlfriend, played by Vera Farmiga, Madeline. Costigan also almost makes Sullivan after Colin leaves the adult theater. Sullivan calls Costigan on Queenan's phone. They're both also at the raid at the end of the movie, at the drug deal. And when they finally meet, this is where Costigan comes in to get their identity back. And it's a very emotional moment for the audience because you've been watching both of their stories, both of their storylines, and they finally connect and they finally intersect with them inside of Sullivan's office. Hmm. It's ironic where they both die after they both have revealed themselves for their true nature. So when Costigan is killed, it's after he he catches Sullivan, handcuffs him, and he's bringing him down the elevator. And so in this moment, Costigan is his his officially chosen his side and his path that he wants to walk on. He's a cop. He's not going to be an undercover anymore. He's going to turn Sullivan in now, and everything's going to become. Now he's going to become a normal cop. And his life's going to be much better. He's not going to have to pretend to be a thug and, uh, and a gangster anymore. But then he's killed immediately when he finally chooses his, and, and when he finally reveals his true path. And the same thing happens to Sullivan when he walks into his apartment and finds um, when and finds Dignam there waiting for him to kill him. He just sees Dignam and gives that, just that simple, all right, all right, where he's pretty much admitting to Dignam, yeah, you got me, I'm a gangster. And then he's killed immediately. So they both reveal their true natures, and they're immediately killed for it. When I first saw this in theaters, I know you had the exact same reaction to me. I was completely shocked when Costigan got shot in the head. You had been pulling for this guy like the whole freaking movie, and he finally gets to arrest Sullivan despite it being like a half-borderline citizen's arrest. Was this a fucking citizen's arrest? And he'd been, you'd been pulling for the guy the whole time because he's the, clearly the protagonist in the movie. And... um. They're in the elevator, and they're riding down, and Sullivan whines, eventually, just kill me. Just fucking kill me. To which Costigan declares, I am killing you. Then the door opens, then boom, Costigan's shot in the head. And this line of, just fucking kill me, and then I am killing you, it's such an ironic kind of double metaphor where obviously Costigan doesn't mean he's going to like execute him. Yeah. He means he's killing him professionally, socially. By turning him in. Killing his life. He's yeah. ending his life, and he's going to be in prison for the rest of his life. And although, yes, Sullivan survives. Boston accent coming up. Survives. <laughs> although Sullivan survives this scene and doesn't get shot, Costigan gets shot here. Sullivan's sloppy cover-up still leads to his own death. So even though he doesn't get killed here by Costigan, he still gets his life ended, and Costigan still is killing Sullivan here in this scene, revealing him and and putting it leads, Sull- it leads to Sullivan's death. It leads to Sullivan's death, exactly. So it's kind of like a double ironic metaphor, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And then let's get to the probably the funnest fact about this movie. And you, there's no way you notice it the first few times you watch this movie unless you're told about it. But there, in 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 Scorsese's directing. You can see an X, like an X marks the spot. You can see X's in the backgrounds and sets of these of the film, 
in every scene where a person's going to get killed, and every scene where a person talks about murder. And so I made a list of all the exes in the movie. And the exes represent your, this person's about to die. If there's a character in a shot with an ex, that means they're going to die. It's also they're about to die, and also they're talking about someone dying. Yeah. Okay, so there's an ex taped on the elevator right behind Costigan, which happened, which you see right before he's shot in the head. And then there's there are several exes behind Costigan at the airport, and there are several exes in the carpeting of Sullivan's apartment building. When when Sullivan is is being chased by Costigan, there's ex there's a, there's an ex made with graffiti in the beginning of the film. Costello's in silhouette, and there's narration going on. There are several beams that of wood that make an X right behind him. And in several scenes with Costigan and Sullivan, you can see there are several X's made on the walls based with uh, with lights by, that the crew used. After Queen is thrown off the rooftop of that building, there are X's taped onto the windows of that building as he's falling down to the ground. You're missing one. What's the one I'm missing? Uh, the citizen's envelope. Oh, the citizen's envelope. So when Frank Costello wants all his gang members to give all their personal information because he's looking for the rat, and obviously it's that iconic shot where the uh, Irish gang member uh, writes down citizens but spells it horribly wrong. Citizens. <laughs> and Costigan fixes the spelling for him. He's like, citizens, you fucking R word. <laughs> citizens. Uh, that envelope eventually gets crossed out. Yeah, which leads it's another metaphor for Costigan's death. You're right. And then another great takeaway of this film, which Scorsese does, which he has done in all of his films, is his ability to use popular music in a profound way to advance the scenes. And there's two songs in particular in this film that he uses to great effect. There's Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones, which he's used a couple other times in his films, using Casino and Goodfellas, but he uses it in the in, in the beginning of this film. And it really sets up the world in the tone of the movie. And then, most famously for this film, he used Shipping Up to Boston by the Dropkick Murphys I became a couple iconic. of times. That was an iconic song in Boston for a couple of years when it came out. Several, it still is. It, and it was, it was used to great effect in this scene. Um, I think there's one more thing we should talk about on this movie before we move on. And that's mm-hmm. the ending metaphor of the literal rat walking along the balcony. So after Sullivan shot by Dignam... He le- Dignam leaves, and then the camera tracks from Sullivan's dead body and pans up to the window, and we see a little rat scurry across the railing. And a lot of people hate it, and I even found online petitions for people asking there- for it to be digitally removed, which is hilarious to me that people think that Marty Scorsese would even consider a stupid fucking Kickstarter account to digitally remove something from his film. How entitled can a person be to think that they can improve upon a Martin Scorsese movie? Or that this the, the greatest filmmaker ever! <laughs> or that the ending of this movie is such a detriment to their life that they have to change it. And you know what? Why did Scorsese use such a blatant metaphor? Why not? The film is about multiple rats why not end it with an actual rat i think it's fun i mean I, it I made me chuckle it. i i laughed at the it's end la- of it. it's that's the thing is it's a joke it's funny because ultimately all of the paths of these rats led to their deaths so it's like and then you have the metaphor of power behind the rat of the golden dome of the state house yeah which means that no one even achieved what they really wanted there's no way a rat could ever achieve the true power of a position like that and so I, I honestly, I like the ending. I, I love. I don't like it. I love it. I, I think like, it's great. I, Every I time no, I see it, I smile. I'm like, oh, it's I'm like, here comes Marty. the rat. Here comes Marty, the rat. Marty did it again. <laughs> Fucking Marty. <laughs> All right, that's the uh, the departed, which 
We did 40 minutes on that. That's a good time. It's a great film. If you haven't seen it, watch it. And if you if you have seen it and love it, you know what we're talking about. It's easily, hands down, one of the greatest, one of the greatest crime films ever made. For sure. Warner Scorsese's best. Yep. Let's move on to the second film on our list, Goodwill Hunting. Directed by Gus Van Sant in 1997, written by Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Two people who are obviously all over this list. This film follows a boy genius from, again, Southie, South Boston Projects, coping with the trauma of his past while finding direction in his life with the help of a psychiatrist. This is a, a famous film, obviously, because it gave the birth of Matt Damon and Ben Affleck's um, celebrity. Stellar careers. But they won the Oscar for writing in this screenplay because it is such a well-written script. And it went through this incredible story of Matt Damon wrote the initial at first act in a playwriting class at, in college. And then he and Ben Affleck developed it into a feature film script. And it went through several variations. They eventually got it into the hands of Kevin Smith, a friend of theirs, who passed it on to Miramax. And, and from then on, it, it became what we know of it today. But what's really cool about it is Goodwill Hunting is this amazing personal, emotional, character-driven drama. But originally they wrote it as an action thriller with the government forces chasing after Will Hunting for some kind of reason based on his, his knowledge and something he, he developed or, or discovered. Several, after giving the script to several people in Hollywood, they, they recommended that they tone down the action and make it a more personal character drama which ultimately benefited the script because it became a, a beloved story i mean the film is full of dense emotional dialogue there are so many scenes that just keep you in tune with the film and they're gripping intense and and you feel so many emotions watching this whole film and you even cry a few times and i think the benefit of a script being written by actors is is the dialogue to me makes it feel more realistic, specifically because Matt and Ben, while they're writing, they would act the scenes out. You know, what sounds more realistic here rather than just like a screenwriter working on it? They were actually faxing each other pages while they were working on different jobs because there was no email back then. <laughs> <laughs> and they got to see what worked and what didn't work, not to mention it's based in Boston. So these guys know Boston. You know, Matt's from Cambridge. I think they're ben, both from Cambridge. Yeah, Ben grew up in Cambridge. They went to the same elementary school and high school and stuff like that. And so they know how Bostonians talk, what typical people from Southie sound like, guy. So they know they know what's up with the city. They know how to talk like us kids from down south, you know? The reason why I think the dialogue is so well written is because they, they develop the style, which is rarely seen in, in films in Hollywood. And someone like Tarantino utilizes this, this uh, technique very well, is the characters in this, in this film tell stories all the time. And telling stories is probably the most common way people communicate with one another. You tell a friend a story about something that happened to you yesterday or someone tells a story in a group and then it reminds you of a story of when you were a kid, so you tell your story. So part of communicating in, in dialogues with uh, several people is this trading off of stories. It's kind of like it goes back to the very first humans when language was first developed and they're telling stories about the hunt they went on or the gatherings they or the the things they gathered for the for the community that day so storytelling is embedded in the social community of being a person and so most films telling stories is not a thing characters do very often usually um, usually dialogue is a very plot driven 
it's uh, short and concise. It gets to the point for the most part. But in this in this film, every character tells stories. So, for example, Chucky tells a story about the drunken uncle. Skylar tells a story about that old couple with the blowjob. Sean tells a story about his wife and also the story about the World Series, which he skipped. Lambeau tells a story about that old mathematician in the early 1900s from India. And then Will tells a story of his possible life as an NSA analyst. And so being having their characters tell stories to each other in the film is what adds the realism and adds the believability of the dialogue and why it works so well. And the plot of this film, nothing short of fascinating. It's a brilliant idea in my opinion. It's relatable to anyone who's grown up in a city or grown up in poverty. Setting it in Boston is great because, again, it's a very historic city, and you don't have to set every movie in New York. (laughs) Boston's a city very rich in culture and history, and it deserves more than just, you know, crime stories and mob movies. And this story is is more, and offers a romantic view of Boston, which the city really deserves. And these guys are relatable. You know, they're blue-collar guys, they work in construction, they're laying brick, they're tearing things tearing buildings down they're broke they don't have much and it's not like another movie where a person works as a server in a restaurant yet they have this amazing apartment in new york city it just doesn't make sense but with this it's like will lives in this shack in in the awful part of Southie. in and we don't see chucky's house but we know they all don't have anything because they all share a car this whole group of friends so it's it's more so relatable to see these guys and we know what the struggle is like they just, they're just getting by day by day. You know what I mean? Yeah. Let's move on to the characters. Yeah. And starting, obviously, with Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon, obviously. Incredibly interesting character who you can't help but love despite all of his flaws. You can see the emotional and physical damage from his childhood displayed in every single scene. Matt Damon does a great job expressing that emotion all the time. Everything he's in his past hidden deep down that he's buried and I think his performance was was perfect, and it deserved the Oscar nomination that it got. And Will, like we said, is from Southeast South Boston, which used to, get, again, be labeled the toughest town in America. Mm. And Will had a very rough childhood being an orphan, which has since plagued him with both emotional and physical wounds. And I find Will to be very relatable because, you know, you're dealing with the struggle of, of life and poverty, and you don't have much in we grew up in Boston, and we didn't have much. We're the youngest of six boys, and you know, eight people in a three-bedroom apartment, and hand-me-down clothes and toys. And so, I can relate to Will on some extent to struggles like that. But then you throw in the fact that he's a supreme genius, one of probably like a handful on the planet Earth, once in a generation. And Will has a photographic memory and is absurdly good at mathematics and can read pages from books by just glancing at them and memorize them. And he can recite history textbooks on the spot and can solve mathematical equations in seconds that have plagued mathematicians for decades. So he's just a really fascinating character to put in such a rough area and a rough life. That's exactly what I think makes the character so strong is this film talks a lot about how the environment in which you grow up in can really shape you as a person because Will, Will Hunting is the most brilliant person alive and the most brilliant person born in decades in the entire planet. But because of his trouble and abusive childhood, he was never given the opportunity to use the gifts that he has, and he he has lost any kind of desire to pursue it. You know, rather than trying to pursue any kind of career, he likes to hang out with his buddies, getting drunk on the weekends, getting into fights. 
He just wants to be one of the guys because he feels safe in that world. In this little bubble in, in Southie with his three friends, this is where he feels safe. Because of the abusive childhood he grew up into, he's afraid of moving out of his comfort zone. So anything new and anything challenging, he runs away from because it scares him. And he's afraid of being hurt. He's afraid of being rejected like he was all of his childhood. And so he pushes everything new away, which is why he breaks up with Skylar, which is why he doesn't want to become anything or do anything substantial with his life. Yet in spite of this, he still spends his free time soaking up as, as much knowledge as possible, solving equations on the MIT chalkboard. In his mirror, in his bathroom. In his mirror. He craves the ability, he craves to use his mind and to use his talents, but it's all hidden. He doesn't let anyone know. His friends know he's, his friends know he's wicked smart, but they don't know that he's a once-in-a-lifetime genius smart. He keeps it hidden. So he, because of his past, he's afraid of ever becoming the, a true version of himself. Yeah, and although Selfie is the source of all his pain and his trauma, Will is afraid, like you said, to leave Boston. He's never left the city. And that shows you that he's terrified of the world. He's terrified of choosing a path besides the path of people who grew up the way he grew up. He only wants to be with people who have the life he has. And he wants the life that he thinks he should have, which is what Chucky has and what Casey Affleck's character has. Ripping, demolitioning, demoing buildings and not amounting to much and watching their kids play Little League down the street. And that's what he doesn't understand is that Chucky finds it disrespectful that he wants to live that life, even though he's been given this golden ticket to get out of there. Exactly. Chucky, real quick, is Will's childhood best friend, played by Ben Affleck, serves as a constant reminder to Will of his past and really his only source of family. Chucky is basically like the brother Will never had. And like you said... Chucky wants Will to leave Boston. He wants to get him out of there. That's why he says every, the best part of my day is I go to pick you up and I go to your door and I imagine that you're not there and that you're gone. Because Chucky, he's a, he's a, in my opinion, he's a really noble character because he's not ever envious of Will's gifts. He's not jealous of Will. But he can't stand the fact that Will is going to waste, like you said, this, this lottery ticket over self-pride. Yeah, the thing is, Chucky, he's not smart. He's not a genius like Will, but he he knows enough to realize that there's a ceiling in his life. You know, there's only so far he can go. But for Will, he has no ceiling and he can do anything. And so for him, it would be it would be insulting to him and the other guys if Will just stuck around there. Because if they were in his shoes, you know, you bet your ass they'd get out of there as soon as they could. Yeah, there's that great emotional scene where where they're talking about that. Chucky and, and Will when they're demoing the building on their break and and Chucky's like if you're still here in 10 years I'm gonna fucking kill you because Chucky doesn't want him around he's he like you said he he should go he has to go that's for the, them it's an insult like you said to the rest of the neighborhood if he doesn't go that's the biggest kick in the ass that Will got in the film and he needed that and then throughout the film Will develops these two father figures in his life. So there's Lambeau, who is this well world-renowned mathematician, played by Stellan Skarsgård. He's fantastic in this role. And he's, he eventually recruits Will, gets him out of jail, and makes a deal with him where he has to work on mathematics with him in order to stay out of prison. And then the other father figure he develops is Sean, played by Robin Williams in his Oscar-winning role. 
and he plays a psychiatrist who's very similar to Will in, in his past. And part of the agreement, he has to see the psychiatrist too. Yeah. The thing with Lambeau is he's a very brilliant man, but he's also a very flawed character because he wants Will to get started on work right away and advance his knowledge of mathematics because he thinks that Will can have a really profound um, impact on the world. And so he just shoves this, this life of work onto Will. But the thing is, he doesn't care about what Will wants because Will doesn't want that. Will's just trying to stay out of prison. But Lambeau pushes Will so hard because he's insecure about how immensely more intelligent he is than himself. Will is so smart that there's only a handful of people in the world that can tell the difference between him and Will. And yet Lambeau knows that as smart and brilliant and as no matter how many accolades he has and no matter how, many, how much renown he has, He's nothing compared to Will's, Will's intellect. Yeah, Lambeau is a highly accomplished mathematician and the yeah. winner of the Fields Medal for Mathematics and also former college roommate of Sean's. Yeah. Um, and yeah, he tries to take Will under his, under his wing academically, but I see Lambeau is similar to Will in terms of his arrogance. He's highly arrogant and confident due to his accomplishments and due to his intellect, but we soon find out quickly in comparison Lambeau's intellect is basically like an eight-year-old compared to Will Hunting's. Yeah. And he'll never be able to accomplish anything that Will can accomplish. So it, it begs to differ, and it creates this interesting dynamic between them where despite Lambeau's accomplishments, Will is better than him in everything. So the world knows Lambeau, and he's famous for his intellect, but he knows that he's, like you said, a child compared to Will in intellect. And so because of this, Lambeau is trying to live vicariously through Will by having him develop his, his mathematical intellect and discover new solutions to problems because he can't do it himself. And there's that incredible scene. It's one of the most powerful scenes in the film where, where Will has an equation written and they have a fight, an argument about Will's future because Lambeau doesn't understand that this isn't the life that Will wants because Lambeau and Sean represent two different paths that Will can, be, Will, Will can take. He can become an accomplished mathematician or, and he can become who are uh, uh, kind of a nobody who never tapped into his potential. And so with Lambeau, he doesn't understand that Will just wants to live his normal life. He doesn't want all this fame. He doesn't care about that. And so he burns the equations and the solution that he just, he just uh, solved, and he throws it on the floor because he says, this is just child's play to me. This is, this is, you know how easy this is? This is nothing. And Lambeau, in desperation, tries to blow out the burning papers because you can see that for Will, this is like literally playing with crayons, but for Lambeau, this is the most advanced mathematical, math, the most advanced mathematics that's been done in decades. So you yeah. can see the difference in intellect with them right, with that scene. And that's a, a sequence of self-destruction that Will Hunting goes through, which we'll touch on in a little bit. But I want to yeah. go back a little bit and talk about Sean. Who yeah, is let's talk about the other father Easily figure. the second most important person in the film. And Sean is Will's psychiatrist who teaches at Bunker Hill Community College. Uh, community colleges in New England and in Massachusetts are a little different th than other parts of the country. They're sort of a step down from normal universities or colleges. It's called Bunker Chill. Bunker Chill, kid. It's where you chill and get drunk. And Sean is also from Southeast, so he understands Will's life better than any doctor he's ever seen. And Sean's life is sort of at this plateau or at this wall where he, he doesn't take risks anymore. He teaches and he goes home. And like Will, Sean also has pain in his past the death of his wife, which you hinted at earlier, haunts Sean like the trauma of Will's childhood and abuse haunts Will. Both Sean and Will eventually need each other to be freed from their past traumas and move on with their lives. 
And the thing with, with Sean is he has a completely different to approach to how Will needs to grow. So whereas Lambeau thinks that Will needs to just get working right away, Sean believes that it's necessary for Will to find emotional closure and to accept himself in order to move forward. So Sean doesn't want Will doing any kind of work. He just wants him to, to work on himself before working on any mathematics. Because what happened with Sean is through the death of, death of his wife, he ended up not accomplishing much with his life. And we learned through Lambeau, Lambeau admits that Sean is smarter than him. He said he's, he was smarter than me then, you're smarter than me now. So what? But Sean doesn't have any awards. He doesn't have any recognition because he squandered it. He lives a life of regret for both the death of, the, death of his wife and also for not accomplishing the things he could have accomplishment accomplished. So he kind of becomes this version that Will can become a person who never taps into the potential that he has the ability to become. And Will uses his genius intellect throughout the film as a defense mechanism, specifically against the doctors that Lambeau sets him up with, either attacking their methods of psychiatry, their past work. Um, and Will feels the biggest threat from Sean when he first meets Sean in their first couple meetings. And it's finally like a match that kind of equals him psychologically. His defense to Sean's attempts to help him are to tear Sean's life apart from a painting Sean made. This leads to that infamous monologue after he tears apart his life saying that he married the wrong woman, which really you learn that that's not what happened. Sean gives Will that infamous monologue at the duck pond. And the scene's one of the, the best in the film and for two reasons. One, Robin Williams' acting is completely su superb. This won him the Oscar. Yeah, this, this scene probably got him the Oscar. Yeah. And it shows also that Sean is opening up to Will fully, which he explains has to go both ways. This is the first time that Will begins to feel like he can trust somebody because one of Will's biggest flaws is trust. He can't trust new people. He can't form new relationships. He can't trust anyone to, to, to leave the city. So his biggest dilemma in life is trust. And finally, he's learning to trust somebody. And also, Sean shows him that he's not just some old fool. Because with Will, because of his intellect, he knows that he's smarter than everyone he meets. No one can compete with him. And so that's why he's able to easily destroy and deconstruct Sean right away. But with this scene, Sean fights back and he proves that, yes, Will's a genius, but he's never actually experienced anything. He's never been outside of Southie. He's never lived so Sean, even though he's not as smart as Will, he has a lifetime of experience, which means that even though Will knows all this information, Sean knows more about life, which you could argue is way more important. And life is the one area in which Will has very little knowledge of because he's never truly lived life. And where's the source of his lack of trust come from? It comes from his childhood and his abuse and his inability to emotionally connect with anyone, which obviously is shown with Skylar when he has this great first date with Skylar and it seems like a lot of fun and they even kiss at the end and they have a great night. But then in a session with Sean, he's talking about her and he's like, I haven't called her back yet. And and Sean's wondering why. And and Will gives this fake answer, but the Sean kind of says, says that she's perfect. I don't want to ruin it is yeah. what he says. And then yeah. Sean's like, well, maybe you're perfect, Will. Maybe you don't want to ruin anything in your life. So And so Skylar represents a, this idea of settling down and growing into true adulthood establishing a uh, intimate relationship with someone which will has never done this scares will because he's hesitant to let her get too close because he's afraid of being rejected and he's afraid of um of loss 
And so when she asks him to go to California with her, he obviously freaks out and breaks up with her because moving to a different state with her would be a challenge. It would be something new, and it would take him out of his safe place. He's safe in Boston. He's safe with his buddies. He's safe without any challenge. And also part of him resents Skylar because she kind of comes from privilege in a way where she has money, although she has money because her father passed away. And so he needs to come to the terms of the fact that, yeah, Skylar has money, enough money to pay for her school, but that doesn't mean her life's easy. It doesn't mean she hasn't suffered like you've suffered. So Will needs to learn that life is rarely easy for anyone. And yeah, he's been through a lot of shit, but you know what? This girl who we thought was just a rich girl from England has actually been through a lot of shit as well. The way that Will meets Skylar at the Have It Bar, it reflects Will's entire psychology. He showcases his exceptional gifts and toughness, that stealthy toughness in front of everyone for everyone to see. But he chooses not to talk to Skylar after the interaction where he had all night and she's looking at him to come over and talk to her and he refuses to because he's afraid to follow new paths and have new relationships enter his life. She has to initiate it. Exactly. And as Sean points out, like we said, maybe Will thinks he's too perfect for anyone else. Halfway through the film, it seems like Will is heading down this positive direction. He's going down this path. His sessions with Sean are going well. His studies with Lambeau are providing valuable and effective. He's building this relationship with Skylar, and he's even offered jobs. And there's that great scene where Chucky interviews for him and gets retainer. 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 <laughs> but Will self-destructs everything on a massive scale and he ruins his relationship with Skylar when she tells him that she loves him and she wants him to move to California with her and that's when he goes off on his past that he's been hiding from her and then he deconstructs Lambo's intellect and like you said burns his notes in his homework which Will says you know how fucking easy this is for me and I have it's to come here and joke. watch and I have to come here and watch you fuck it up and um it's it's then Sean who breaks Will down emotionally, finally achieving the psychological breakthrough that Will has needed his entire life. And Will can finally now open up and trust people. He's able to finally move on from his past. This movie has so many iconic scenes that I'll love forever, like yeah. the Harvard bar scene. Oh, this is a Harvard bar. I thought there'd be equations and shit on the wall. Yeah, and this is when, and then right after that, Will embarrasses that snarky Harvard guy. Hey, you like apples? He slams a number on his phone. I got a number. How do you like them apples? <laughs> I love Casey Affleck in this movie, too. He's just like constant comic relief, like when he masturbates into Ben Affleck, Chucky's glove, and and uh, the putting the sandwich on retainer on the on the dashboard of the car. He's just, we'll put it on layaway. We'll put it on layaway for you. When you get enough money, you can pay for your sandwich. <laughs> He's hysterical throughout the whole movie. But overall, this is a phenomenal movie. Amazing performances. Well-deserved Oscars. Launched the careers of... Two legendary filmmakers and actors, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and got Robin Williams his much deserved Oscar. And this is Gus Van Sant's best film, probably. Yeah, and it's it's a really great movie. Time to move on. Let's move on. The final movie in this episode of Boston-based movies is The Town. The Town Kid, directed by Ben Affleck in 2010, based on the book Prince of Thieves by Chuck Hogan. This film launched Ben's career back into like hollywood's good graces his resurrection he previously directed gone baby gone before this movie which was a phenomenal directorial debut starring his brother casey affleck Mm -hmm. but he took the town to another level cementing himself as a seriously talented filmmaker and And, triple threat 
And it changed the court of public opinion about him. At this point of his career, before he made Gone Baby Gone, he had become kind of like a, a joke in Hollywood. He had a bunch of bombs back to back to back. And he had he was dating J-Lo for a while. And I feel as though, especially the people of Boston, didn't really take him that seriously anymore. And then he came out with this one-two punch of Gone Baby Gone in the town. And he just came back into the good graces of the city that birthed him. And again, he's that rare triple threat in Hollywood where he pulled it off in the town. He's been doing it since with Argo and some other movies where he's writer, director, actor, like Clint Eastwood. Not many people have been able to do this. And The Town is a much simpler film compared to the other two in terms of emotionality. It doesn't mean it's not a great film. Essentially, it's a, it's a robbery crime drama. Yes. Crime drama. Yeah. So The Town is about a longtime thief, Ben Affleck, who plays Dougie, planning his next job and also tries to balance his feelings for a bank manager connected to an earlier heist and a hell-bent FBI agent looking to bring him and his crew down. This film is one of the best modern crime dramas by far, which is why it's on this list. But also, Ben is a smart director. He directs his action so well. He directs the chase scene so well. Um, and also, this film has such an iconic image of the robbers dressed as nuns in the first robbery. and the, I mean, in the second robbery. And it became an iconic image in the marketing campaign. Pretty much all the posters were, were the nun holding the machine gun. And that image was such a striking... It was such a striking image where he's smart enough to know, like, this, this contradiction of a nun holding a machine gun can really get people's attention. You know what I mean? I think that really helped sell the film. Another decision I think he made that was very smart for the film was hiring Robert Ellsworth for cinematography, yeah. who's, uh, if you don't know, he's Paul Thomas Anderson's cinematographer... He's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> He's all right at his job. Besides uh, Phantom Thread. But he also shot a few of the Mission Impossible movies. Yeah, so this this film is beautifully made, beautifully shot. And also, the cast is phenomenal. And let's get into the, the Be- characters. Before of- the lead cast, I just want to mention, um, just like Gone Baby Gone, Affleck cast a lot of Boston locals for the su- small supporting roles in the film. And that adds so much realism to the quality of the performances. And even the two guys in their crew, those other two guys who are actors you don't even know or recognize because they're just Boston locals. One's in Gone Baby Gone, One's in Gone Baby Gone. So it adds the realism because these are real people from the real city, and it's authentic. There's a bunch of great opening shots of Charlestown and all the triple-deckers and all the locals and the townies in their homes because Charlestown is different than Southie. Southie is South Boston. Charlestown is just like a little northwest of downtown Boston. It's where the Battle of Bunker Hill, Bunker Chill Monument is. <laughs> so it's a different part, and Charlestown's known as having, um, I think they say it in the film, they're the highest over, robbery rate. Yeah, there are over 300 bank robberies in Boston every year. Most of these professionals live in one square mile neighborhood of Charlestown. And, and it's uh, separated by a bridge, so oftentimes when a robbery takes place, they try to shut the bridge down. Yeah, so it's basically like a, a familial trade in Charlestown. Mm. And so let's move on to the characters. Dougie, played by Ben Affleck, is a wicked smart and, deci- <laughs> and very disciplined mastermind behind all the bank robberies. He seems to have bank robberies down to a science with his planning and execution because he's been doing it all his life like his father, but unlike his colleagues, Dougie has a conscience. He insists on never killing people during jobs. He treats the teller, or the bank manager in the beginning, at the first heist with respect, which he eventually falls for. And, he, and he's always had trouble with crime in his past, 
But you can tell, and there are hints of it in the beginning of the film, where he's trying to turn his life around. He's going to AA meetings, so he's trying to improve himself. And yes, he's kind of stuck and handcuffed to this life of crime, but part of him wants to escape this life and start something new in a, in a fresh and start a new fresh life in a different state, a different place. Yeah, unlike Will Hunting, who never wants to leave Boston throughout the film of Will Hunting until the end, Dougie can't wait to get out of Charlestown. He's desperate for a new life, which he wants to make in Florida. And I think Dougie is regretful for his past mistakes. And he was once a great hockey player and had a potential legitimate chance of being a professional hockey player. But he blew that shot due to his youthful arrogance and temper and Dougie's new or his soft-tempered personality seems to be a form of repentance, just like his AA meetings hmm. for his past mistakes and the, the life out of Charlestown that he blew. And like many criminals, he then turns to the profession of necessity, and in Charlestown, it's basically a family trade. And the thing is, he's, he feels as though he's kind of stuck in this trade because not only does he feel handcuffed to Fergie, the local mob gangster who's in charge of the, the area, every time they pull a job, they have to give him a cut of it, but he also feels very much tied to Jeremy Renner's character, James, because James went to prison for Doug. So he feels as though he owes a, so much of a, a, such a large debt to James where he's kind of stuck having to pull these jobs with him to kind of pay him back for what James did, to him, did for him in the past. Yeah, so James Coughlin, nicknamed Jem, is Dougie's childhood best friend and brother to Dougie's supposed baby mama, played <laughs> by Blake Lively. And Jem is an incredibly loyal friend to Dougie, like you said, having served prison time for him after killing a person who was going to take Dougie out in their mm. past. But he's also a wild card, and prison has made him impatient. And he wants to make as many scores as possible, and he rushes their final job. And he's easily the most interesting character in the movie. And Jeremy Renner's performance is phenomenal. And his accent is like one of the best accents I've ever seen from for someone not from Massachusetts doing a Boston accent. He nailed it. And he was uh, nominated for an Oscar for this. Yeah, and he surrounded himself with actual bank robbers and convicted bank <laughs> robbers from Charlestown for research to get the accent right, get the mentality right. And he's... The best part of the movie, in my opinion. Jem is such a great character because, yes, he's a loyal friend and he loves Dougie and would die for him. But also, he's so dangerous. He's a killer. And he wouldn't hesitate for a second between killing you or not. And there's always this, this line that Renner's balancing between possibly getting set off. And you're, you're always hoping Dougie or other characters don't set him off because you don't know what could happen. And Jem's erratic behavior and wildcard mentality is the reason why in the opening heist they have to take Rebecca Hall hostage, uh, who plays Claire, and which eventually leads to her, her being entangled in the film storyline because they find out that Claire is from Charlestown too, and they're worried about her making them in public. And this is where Jem, because he's crazy now after doing all this prison time, he offers to take her out, just like casually. And Doug's like, we don't have to kill her because obviously they were wearing masks. They didn't, she didn't see any of their faces. But still, Jem's worried of her being able to identify them in any way because they live in the same neighborhood. And this is where Doug starts following Claire and also eventually develops a romantic relationship with her. But literally, they know that she recognized the tattoo on Jem's neck. Yeah. So she does have she does have uh, evidence that could take them that could put them away, 
But the problem with this is Doug sees Claire as a way out. It's the first time he ever has developed a connection with someone outside of Charlestown. And because she's a toonie, because she's a toonie, she's not from Boston. She moved to Boston for work, and that's what people not from Charlestown who moved to Charlestown are: locals are townies, non-locals are toonies. And so I think that's what's appealing to Claire for Dougie is because she's not from here; she's not part of the neighborhood. And so, for the first time in his life, he feels like he can maybe start something fresh with a new person in a new place. And but ultimately, that can never work out because he's hiding the fact that. He was one of the bank robbers that took her hostage in the beginning of the film. Yeah, so Dougie's dealing with a lot in this film. You know, the stakes are immense for this guy, and you can't help but feel happy for him the way the movie ends up. But throughout the film, he's dealing with not only the the money he has to pay to Fergie, but he also is dealing with struggling with falling in love with Claire, hiding it from Jem and his crew, evading the FBI, planning the next heist, and figuring out how to get out of Charlestown forever. And John Hamm is, is really great in this movie as he plays uh, the FBI agent, Agent Frawley. This is the, his first major role outside of Don Draper. Yeah, it's kind of like a cliche FBI agent won't isn't afraid to get his hands dirty, but he's obsessed with finding or catching um, Dougie at the, in the act of robbery. He's like Al Pacino in Heat. And this, this movie's very reminiscent to me of Heat, especially... That massive shootout that they have. And it, so, obviously, we'll just get right to the climax of not only is it an amazing shootout, but it happens inside of Fenway Park. It's that fucking Fenway guy. Fenway Park. So the last heist, the big heist that, that Doug's going to retire off of is they, they, steal, they plan to steal several million dollars from the security vault in Fenway Park. And they're very successful in their act of, of, of the robbery but ultimately are found out by the FBI because Krista um, gives them away to John Hamm. And that leads to this epic shootout inside of Fenway Park, a place that all Bostonians know very well. It's near and dear to our hearts. So it was amazing to see this, this place where we've walked through so many times with so much love and affection, and to see it as the, the set piece for an epic shootout was just mind-blowing for me. Yeah, and this shootout is awesome. Again, it's reminiscent of the shootout in Heat, which I don't think will ever be topped. Never. Uh, Michael Mann's <laughs> Heat shootout is phenomenal. Yeah, we'll but, talk about that eventually. But this is great. Ben did a great job with this escape in this shootout sequence. And it must have been a dream come true for Ben, you know, not just making another Boston-based movie, but to film it at Fenway and then hold the premiere at Fenway. It must have been a really special night for the guy. And they even shot scenes at Fenway mid-season during games, which was unprecedented. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're Ben Affleck and you can do pretty much anything you want in Boston, <laughs> he managed to make an epic shootout for this epic crime thriller there. Not to mention this film also has fantastic car chase scenes. Yep. The, the robbery where they're wearing, wearing the nun outfits, I think it's the second heist they pull, it has that awesome chase where they swap cars for that minivan. But they chase the chase happens throughout Beacon Hill. Yeah, so you, you, and you watch this minivan, this crappy V4 thing that has no acceleration, <laughs> full of robbers dressed in nun outfits trying to outrun police officers, but thanks to the tiny side streets of Boston, all the one ways, they eventually manage to make it out. If you've, ever, if you've never driven in Boston, just know that it's not like LA, it's not like New York, it's not like DC. It doesn't make sense at the all. The roads are an absolute mess. There's no grid formation at all. It's just tight turns and one ways everywhere. So uh, it, it proved as a 
very helpful environment for them to get away from the cops. Yeah, just great chase sequences, great um, shootouts. And I love the shot where they pull up next to uh, a cop and he's just sitting in his cruiser and the cop just turns his head away to yeah. pretend like he never saw them, which Ben actually based off a real cop telling him about a, a robbery that he witnessed where it really happened to him. Hey, I believe it. I mean, if that cop does anything, he's dead. I would turn my head. I'd turn my head. Right away. Yeah. A major theme of this film is redemption, a redemption for Dougie's past, a redemption for his mistakes, and trying to get out of Charlestown. Mm. So a few things I love about this film, uh, the clothing was spot on. I was going to say this that too. Is, this is, if, if you watch this film, this is what people in Boston dress like. Well, they dressed like 10 years ago. This is what we wore. This is what people look like. This is what the kind of clothes they wear. It was right on with right on the money. The Departed is spot on too with yeah, Leo DiCaprio's yeah. wardrobe with like the black Boston hat yeah. and just the way he dresses. The, the, hoodie, like the white up, Air yeah. Force Ones. Yep. Boston 101. Yeah, but this one is perfect. And also the haircuts. Most of the guys are rocking that tight Boston fade. Hell I yeah. love it. Hell yeah. I've worn that for many, uh, many years of my life. I might have to do that soon. <laughs> Got the corona flow going real long right now. But that's the most popular haircut in Boston. It still is. Yeah. It's a tough tough town, you know? Yeah. It's a prideful town. You get a, you don't look badass and look <laughs> tough. I, I love the the arc of of Jem, Jeremy Renner's character, because during the climactic shootout, he manages to separate from the rest of the pack, and he's on the run, and then John Hamm and a few other feds and police officers start chasing him on foot. And then he they have a, a small shootout, and then he gets cornered. And his character... The last thing he wants to do is go back to prison. He would rather die than go back to prison. He even said so much earlier in the film. And so what he does is he's cornered by these cops. And he checks his guns and he has no more bullets. And so he's like, fuck it. I'm not going to prison again. He goes back out even though he has no bullets. And the cops shoot him to protect themselves, obviously. And so he chooses suicide by cop rather than going back to prison which is a, a fitting end to the character and a great conclusion to that storyline. And then Dougie, I love the ending of this film for him, where he, he makes it, he gets out, and he, he eventually he avoids the trap that the FBI and John Hamm uh, planned for him mm. um, with the help of Claire. And he leaves that bag of cash for Claire in like the Boys and Girls Club, I think that's where she works, Yeah, yeah. with the note and um, the insinuation that he's down in Florida with the orange to come and find him. Yeah. And I love how it ends with him. He makes it to Florida. Maybe it's a dream. Who knows? But he makes I it think to it's, I think it happened. Yeah, he makes it to Florida. He's on the river, and he's got his little cabin and his little house or whatever. And he's got a beard. It's a happy ending, and, yeah. and it's a wonderful movie. And I, I think Ben Affleck's a seriously talented guy, and I'm so glad that he got to rep Boston with this film. And it, I don't think anyone will ever top a Boston film of, of this magnitude after The Departed. And cemented his status as a director and an actor and brought him back into the love and favor of the public. And he did such a great job with this film. It it couldn't be better. It's a it's kind of a perfect movie. And it is one of my favorite crime dramas and one of my favorite Boston movies. It's a really, really fun time if you've never seen it. Mm -hmm. It's loud as hell, so you <laughs> might have to turn the volume down to some parts. It's Wicked Pissa Guy. Wicked Pissa Guy. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're done with uh, the town. Yeah, we're done. I think we should just go through some honorable mentions and explain why they didn't make the list. We yeah. wanted to keep this kind of short because The Departed and, and Goodwill Hunting, have we, they're so dense. We had a lot to go over. Um, some other great Boston-based movies are Spotlight, which won Best Picture. It's a phenomenal movie. Directed by Bill Condon, and it um, talks. It, it tells the story of the Boston Globe's famous story about the molestation cases within 
Boston w- between priests and young boys. Which I think I think it was like 20% of priests were doing this in the Archdiocese of Boston. So this we grew up during the story because it was like the early 2000s. Yeah, we were a kid when, when this was going on. So yeah. like we lived through that and saw those news headlines every day. So it's a it's a pretty surreal movie to watch. Yeah. But it, it's a great film and it's got an incredible cast. I mean, it's got Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton... Rachel McAdams, I mean, fantastic people. Yeah. Uh, next up, we got Mystic River, which was directed by Clint Eastwood. The man, it's awesome movie. Tim Robbins, Sean Penn, um, Kevin Bacon, Kevin Bacon, Martin Lawrence. Uh, I mean, not my- <laughs> Martin Lawrence, Lawrence Fishburne, <laughs> Lawrence Fishburne. Great movie. It's about uh, the murder of a uh, young girl um, in Boston area. Mystic River area is is Medford Malden area. Um, it's it's based off a book, right? Yeah, and it's about how. The choices of your past can affect your present, and it tells the story of a trio of friends and how the murder of one of their daughters leads to um, very intense drama between them. And how they're all connected, their Mm -hmm. past and their present. Uh, Gone Baby Gone, which again was Ben Affleck's directorial debut. Phenomenal movie, but not the caliber of the town. Casey Affleck is phenomenal in this. This like really brought Casey to mainstream audiences, I think, because he had been in Assassination of Jesse James, but like not many people saw that, no movie. Saw that movie, and I love that movie. Yeah, but not a lot of people saw. It. But Gone Baby Gone was, you know, a, a commercial, sh- a commercial movie. Another great cast. It's got Ed Harris, Morgan Freeman, Michelle Monaghan. So great caliber of actors. Then we got Black Mass, starring Johnny Depp, which we referenced earlier, is the film about uh, James Whitey Bulger, which was a really good movie. But I think they just focused too much on like. The terror of Whitey Bulger and his character rather than a storyline. So it was really missing like an emotional connection for me. Really good movie still. And Johnny Depp's horribly good in it. Yeah. But I wouldn't put it in my top five Boston movies. I feel the same. It's really well made because Scott Cooper is a fantastic director. And he makes excellent movies. Out of the Furnace, right? Yeah, Out of the Furnace. Um, Crazy Heart. Um, he's a fantastic director. But for this, I feel the same way with Whitey Bulger. I think that they made him too much of this unrelatable villain an evil guy where you couldn't connect with him at all and Johnny Depp's great but you couldn't nothing resonated him personally and I think he was just one dimensional as a character and then another honorable mention uh, is Boondock Saints which is a fan favorite Um, I like this movie it's cool obviously not caliber of top five Boston movies Willem Dafoe is really badass in it Uh, the guy from Walking Dead's in it so it's a cool movie it's a fun time Mm. not my favorite Boston movie and then we have worst Boston movies, <laughs> and there are two. First of all, Selfie starring Donnie Wahlberg. What the fuck is that piece of shit? It's I haven't even seen it, but I've seen. Just the watch reviews. the trailer. I don't it's, even want it's to. It's pretty bad. <laughs> I'll find photos of it. And then we got Fever Pitch with Jimmy Fallon. Oh my god! Straight Ugh. garbage. I'm gonna throw up. Horrible representation of Bostonians. We're not like that at all. Jimmy Fallon. He's great. TV show late night host, but he's not a movie star. He's good at what he does, yeah. but acting is not acting in movies is not what he does. Yeah, he got his shot with Fever Pitch and Taxi, and and he fucking blew it. And Drew Barrymore is very charming, like she always is, but this movie just fucking sucks. And it's not that's not what Bostonians are like. We're no, not like Jimmy Fallon. They made him like a a, a cool a, a nice sweet funny guy from LA is what he is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not what Bostonians are like. <laughs> I, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's too, it's too corny. It's <laughs> also, very corny. Fallon's from New York, so fuck that. Yeah, if you're going to have a Boston movie, you got to have Bostonians in the lead it's character It's not that roles. it's just a Boston movie. It's a Boston Red Sox movie. 
So you can't have a guy from New York to play a super fan of the Red Sox, where the main one of the main themes of the movie are the Red Sox. Obviously, Fallon doesn't give a fuck. He's got no pride, and <laughs> I would never put on a Yankees hat no matter what. You know, Jack Nicholson is such a Yankees fan that for The Departed, they wanted him to wear a Red Sox hat for one of the scenes, but he refused to. Then he instead wore a Yankees hat. That's like Ben Affleck when they when David Fincher wanted him to wear a red, wear a Yankees hat for Gone Girl, but he shut down production for like three days because they got in this dispute back and forth where he eventually settled for a Mets hat in the film, <laughs> which is not that bad. But like a Yankees hat, oh yeah. man, even I, for, I would, I'd wear a Mets hat, but you can't wear a Yankees yeah. hat. I, I would feel if someone handed you a Yankees hat, like what what would your reaction be? I'd be like, I, I'd I, throw it. I can't like I would throw it. No, if they if someone was like, I'll give you fifty dollars to put this hat on, I would turn down the. Offer. I would do it. I would be like, no way. Nah, it just feels so. I never have in my hands. worn one. I never will wear it, one. I feel like it would light in, on fire in my hands. You'd have to put it on my dead corpse. <laughs> just staple it to my fucking forehead. <laughs> it's the only way to get a goddamn Yankees hat on me. You're gonna fucking shoot me first. <laughs> Go Sox. Anyways, yeah, it's not a great year for the Sox. But that's the end of our Boston-based movies episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed listening to a couple of massholes. So check out this episode. Check out the last episode we did was on Lord of the Rings. We we countered our fantasy dorky fantasy episode with a, a, a cooler topic. Not that Lord of the Rings isn't cool. I love Lord of the Rings, obviously. <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> we got to you know bring it back to, to a different audience here with this one. <laughs> But um, I love Lord of the Rings. You should probably cut this or keep it. Either way, <laughs> keep, it. Keep, it, keep it. Either way, it's either funny. way. Yes, no, it. maybe. All right, you probably it. keep it. People get think I'm an Who asshole. Who even makes it this long into the episode anyways? People watch, man. People stay the whole time. Oh, that makes me very happy. That's We've cool. been spitballing for the last three minutes. It's hilarious. <laughs> people are laughing. They're still listening to this. But anyways, if you're not from Boston, I hope you, you enjoy the Boston culture that is represented in these movies. Because uh, these movies, they get it spot on. And it's a fun city, and we're proud to be from that city. Yeah, Boston's the greatest city of all time. I fucking love it. It's always going to be home to me. <laughs> fucking yeah, kid. Go Sox. Yaki uh, way. Uh, follow us on Instagram, TikTok, at Raise the Lost Podcast. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the notification bell for new episodes so that you know when we post them. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Leave those five-star reviews. Have a wicked piss on night, guys. The five-star reviews, five guys. Five-stars, kid. Five we love stars. you all, all our fans all over the world. You're the best. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.